Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Eric Perdue and talking about his new translation of the three books of occult philosophy from the uh, 15th, 16th century um, occultist and philosopher, uh, Henry Cornelius Agrippa. So, hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just for those that pay attention to such things, today is uh, Saturday, March 12th, 2022, starting at 11.55 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. And this is the 243rd episode of the show. So um, you have been working. I've, I've actually known you. I think we originally met through like the old like astrology forum that I used to run on MySpace, MySpace. Many, many years ago in like the mid-2000s. 20 mid And way back at some point, I think towards the end of the that decade, like 2008, 2009, I remember you sending me like some pieces of this translation you were working on even way back then of this huge tome um, of, of like this, this book um, that you were working on. How long have you been translating this book? Seriously, since uh, 2011, I was doing okay. little snippets before that to see if I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, and this is the first time that this book has been translated into English um, again in over 300 or 350 years or something like that. I think it's more than that. I was doing the math yesterday. It was, I think, 370. Wow. Okay. So there yeah. was one prior translation, but it was done so long ago in like the 17th century that it is itself um, both kind of weird in terms of its language, but also um, a little unreliable. So right. that's what, one of the reasons that you wanted to do this. What's your background? And you have a background in both astrology as mm-hmm. well as magic, right? Yes, I've been practicing magic since, um, well, seriously, since 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, mostly through the Afro-Cuban sphere, I sort of fell into that accidentally. Um, and my teacher was unusual. He was Cuban, and uh, he was unusual in that he was also interested in Western esoteric tradition as well. So he knew some astrology. He used to elect some of our uh, ceremonies, uh, probably not well in retrospect. And um, But he, he introduced me to Agrippa. He also introduced me to Picatrix, which I think is interesting because this would be mid nineties and that really wasn't on a lot of people's radars yet. Um, so I, he didn't know about the, the critical edition that was of both books, uh, which would have already been out. Um, so he didn't really have a copy of Picatrix. He just you know, knew, you know, subject matter and, and all that, but, but we talked a lot about Agrippa back then. Okay. Um, and so, and I was talking with my friend Austin Kopic about this the other night, and he was telling me that there's been a similar revival, just like how in the astrological community, starting in the 1990s, there was a revival of older forms of astrology and a sort of like looking back into um, what are some of the sources of the Western astrological tradition from prior to the past century mm-hmm. and realizing that things were sometimes done very differently in modern times compared to even a few centuries ago or a thousand years ago or what have you. And he was saying there was a similar trend in some of the magical communities to start going back and looking back at some of the sources of the Western magical tradition. And it seems like um, this work is very much at the, at the intersection of those, those two trends of the revival of ancient astrology and revival of the um, more traditional practices and magic. 
Um, and maybe we should situate and frame and explain for those that have no background on this text whatsoever, um, who Agrippa is, what this book is, and why it's important and influential. Yeah, I wanted to mention really quickly too that one of the inter interesting things that I've, I've always noticed is how the histories of astrology and magic really were parallel and they didn't always cross, um, but the revivals and um, you know, all the various revivals that it's been through and philosophical changes were exactly the same. You know, when the, psych when the psychological rev uh, revolution happened in the, I guess, 20th century, uh, that also happened with magic. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with, you know, the hermetic, the, the medieval hermetic revival happened both astrology and magic. Uh, the, this new renaissance that's happening with the translation projects, they're both happening at the same time. I think astrology had a bit of a jump on that uh, compared to the magical world. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that they're always, they're always you know, running alongside each other, even though today the, the two camps don't always cross. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I had always focused more on the astrological tradition in isolation, and, and there's a lot of like ancient works where they are just purely astrological, or the astrologers are just doing astrology purely, mm -hmm. and I was aware that there were also magical texts um, that were doing magic sort of purely on its own, and some of the histories of that, and then that there were occasional intersections, but it seems like this work in reading it and especially reading your translation recently is one of the huge nexus points where astrology and magic very much intersected and, mm -hmm. and were synthesized and combined in a really major way when he published this work in the early to mid 16th century basically during the renaissance and, and it it was always that way throughout um, most of the ancient world up until uh, really the 19th century, I think. Uh, I'm not sure about the Hellenistic world because they don't really have astrological magic in the way that we think of it uh, today. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very different world there. So I'm not sure how those two mixed. I think it was part of the same worldview though, for sure. Uh, but today people uh, tend to compartmentalize things. Uh, and, you know, really they're all, it's all one big soup, really, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was something we, I talked about last month in my episode on Hermeticism. Uh, was there was a little bit of an issue in the early Hellenistic tradition because of the influence of Stoicism. And a lot of the early Hellenistic astrologers were really focused on learning what your fate is so that you know mm -hmm. what you have to accept in the future. And that's like the point and purpose of astrology. And I think then that that was sort of self-contained in terms of just doing the astrology for the sake of that. But then definitely once you get later into the Hellenistic tradition and, and especially into the medieval tradition, there was more tensions with concepts of free will and stoicism mm -hmm. fell out of, out of um, fashion. And um, therein we see the rise of some of the magical traditions and their integration with astrology because some of the magical traditions were um, playing with this question of once you know your fate, what if you could change it or what if you could do something to alter things in some way or work with it in a way that's more constructive rather mm -hmm. than just um, adopting this position of acceptance, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, shift that happened. And that, that, that shift happened largely because of the fall of the, the Roman Empire. And, you know, both, again, these parallel histories, uh, astrology and magic moved east, uh, east over to uh, Byzantium and Persia. 
and uh, the Persians were definitely very much interested in, um, you know, jailbreaking astrology a little bit for magical purposes. And um, that, that was that had been around for a while in some of, of the cultures in that area, such as uh, you know the Hernians and things like that. And um, by the time it came back into Europe, it was sort of take, taken for granted that it was always done. Um, but it, it really developed after, I think, in the form that we recognize it after the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, it's, it's a very interesting shift to me. Because you sure. don't see a lot of that in early astrological literature and, you know, and things like uh, the, the, the Greek magical papyrus. Uh, it, they don't have a lot of complex elections. They have things like, you know, this is a this is a ceremony for this particular star or constellation or something like that, but you don't have uh, these complex Venus elections where Venus has to be in a particular position and things like that. It's that, that seems to be much later. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, all right. So let's circle back around to a question. Who yes. is, who is this, what is this work that we're talking about and why is it important or influential? So the three books, is interesting because it is the first book that that I'm aware of that has this all-encompassing philosophy that covers all of esoterica. He puts everything in one place, and um, so it's astrology, it's magic, it's uh, what a lot of what we would call t- today magic, but also um, natural. They, they call it natural philosophy, which is the study of the. Uh, esoteric effects of you know plants animals and stones and things like that that's kind of part of the magic umbrella today uh but back then uh you had this kind of uh, all-encompassing worldview and there was there was a lot of conflict before agrippa wrote the book about how to reconcile magic and astrology with you know, say christianity and um and that this book and we're gonna i know we're gonna go into this into this more deeply but this book uh seeing that there's really nothing like it, it never really disappeared from, um, from the shelves. I mean, it was translated during the esoteric revival in, you know, in England in the the 1600s. Um, And that, that copy was disseminated and reprinted, you know, throughout until today. And um, it was influential in things like the formation of the golden dawn and a lot of 19th century and early 20th century lodge magical systems. Um, it's used as a source for pretty much any book on herbs and stones um, that have been, you know, mo- you know modern books. Uh, it's so readily available, um, but it's this all-encompassing worldview that he has, which is, which I, I think is entirely unique and something that is really missing today. Um, a lot of people don't don't really want to take it to the, to the level that Agrippa did, uh, which is fascinating to me. Right. So. Um, so this is a work, the final version of which it was published in uh, 1533, correct? Uh, 15, yeah, 1533. Yes. 1533. And um, he, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa was originally a, he was German. He wrote mm-hmm. the work in Latin. It's a massive text uh, on all different spheres of occultism Mm -hmm. and it ended up being basically the single most influential text um, or one of the single most if not the most influential text on occultism over the past 500 years basically since that time because um, it was translated into English relatively early on only about a century later 
and uh, ended up influencing a ton of different subsequent occult traditions uh, all over the the Western world since that time, including even famously, I think the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, uh, when he died is said to have uh, been found with a Jupiter talisman around his neck. And the design was was the same as the one that was in Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy, right? Yeah. What's interesting about that is it probably wasn't directly Agrippa. It was probably from the Magus uh, by uh, Barrett, uh, John Francis Barrett, I think. And um, that book was mostly plagiarized uh, from three books, which I guess in turn was also plagiarized from many books. But um, the the Jupiter talisman that that he had has a uh, feature in the in the sigil which reproduced a printing flaw hmm. um, okay. that's in Barrett's Magus, which is uh, I think so. I, I don't think it was directly Agrippa, but it, it could have been. Uh, but the Magus was uh, uh, very readily available, maybe more so than Agrippa during his time. Yeah. So, and whether it was like direct is a little inconsequential, but the point is just of course, that yeah. the writing of this book in the 16th century ended up influencing and being sort of the grandfather of many, many different occult traditions in the West over the past 500 years, making it, I mean, I think your your book or, or one of the introductions says that it's the single most influential occult text in the past 500 years. Would you say that's that's true or what's your ranking in, term, in terms of that? I do, because... Uh, when you compare it with other major books, I mean, there are, there aren't many books like this that lay out uh, esoteric thought in this way. Um, I think the predecessors, I mean, the closest would have been probably Ficino. Um, but you know, there, there are sort of gaps in his thinking, which is why I think Agrippa tackled it. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to the central question of, uh, you know, what is good magic? What is bad magic? And um and Agrippa wanted to really reconcile um, this idea that, you know, we had these ancient sages such as, you know, ancient Greeks and Romans that, um, that were hardly questioned in the Renaissance. I mean, people like Plato, and they were doing all of these non-Christian things, yet they're revered as being wise. So how does that work with Christianity? And I, that's kind of the central theme with this. And but I don't want that to scare people because... Um, there's a lot to be learned from that kind of inquiry mm-hmm. um, because, you know, today, instead of uh, Christianity, we might be trying to reconcile it with science, you know, the scientific worldview. Um, so I think there's a lot of value in, in kind of deconstructing this and figuring out, okay, how does this work for me? And if nothing else, you know, getting you to ask those, those questions, but there's nothing else like that. Um, you know, there's some you know, major books from, uh, about the golden dawn, um, but they don't really deal with this kind of worldview either. I mean, they don't, they're, they're most books on magic, you know, and astrology, frankly, are recipe books, you know, they're books on techniques and, um, you know, in the modern era, there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to, um, that the, uh, developing a philosophical worldview around that. And, you know, with the grip of being so readily available, Nothing can really beat that. I mean, Ficino isn't widely available to people today. Right. So um, so this is a person who's living basically during the height of what we consider to be the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And he writes this huge tome 
initially relatively early in his life. He's only like 24 years old when the first right. dra draft is written, but he um, draws on and compiles a bunch of uh, both ancient sources that he has at his disposal on both uh, philosophy and magic and astrology, but also mm -hmm. he incorporates, interestingly, a lot of contemporary sources and thinking that was present during the Renaissance, including like you said, um, large parts from the work of Marsilio Ficino, who was right. working, what, just a few decades prior to-, to Not far. Yeah, not far. Yeah, so, yeah. and from that, he's incorporating some of the things that we associate with the Renaissance, like the um, rediscovery of the works on the Corpus Hermeticum. Mm -hmm. And we find like passages and influences from the Corpus Hermeticum coming up in his work, um, as well as some of the influence of some of the the thinking of, of Platonism and Neoplatonism. Right. So one of the big things though that you're influencing or emphasizing here that's really important is that this is not just three books on practically how to do magic, even though it has that in it, but also he tries he tries to basically synthesize a bunch of the earlier magical and philosophical traditions and provide a rationale and a worldview that allows for mm -hmm. magic within the 16th century context. Yes, and, and for him, it would have been important to show that, that it was part of a natural and divine process and not just simply demons or something like that. Um, because, that, that, again, that was, just a, that was a major concern because, you know, astrology is a good example, you know, where the church didn't necessarily uh, condone astrology, uh, but they had to acknowledge that it worked still. And they used astrology widely for medicine. And that was okay, by and large. Uh, so the question isn't whether or not it was real. Um, the question is whether or not there was a way for it to be okay. So he's writing this in the Renaissance. Um, and one of the things that's really important for, for my audience in terms of him not just developing a philosophy for magic, but um, one of the things I was really struck by was the very central role of astrology in his entire conceptualization of magic as being this core overarching thing that is sort of woven both philosophically as well as practically almost throughout the entire work. Yeah, it, astrology is essentially the physics of the ancient world uh, it, because the, the basic worldview would be that influences come from God uh, or the first cause or however you want to conceptualize that. And it goes down through several levels until it hits the planets and the planets then lend their influences um, in their own way until it reaches the moon. The moon then disperses those influences to us and everything else on the, in the, on the, on the planet. So if we're doing magic or if we're doing you know, any kind of enterprise on earth, then the planets have to be uh, part of that picture. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's everywhere in the book. And, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of chapters that are explicitly astrological, but um, there's a lot of material in there that just, it'll mention it maybe in one sentence. And I think that, you know, it's important to, to uh, understand that this isn't, the astrology just wasn't a you know, divinatory tool to someone like Agrippa. This was uh uh, you know, even if you weren't explicitly using astrology, it was just how, how things worked. That's how nature worked. Uh, you know, astrology was the, um, the means by which 
divine influences came into being for us. So it's, it goes pretty deep. So one of the things I was struck by was um, the extent to which he says that you have to pay attention to the astrology and the inceptional astrology or the electional astrology anytime that you want to attempt to do any sort of magical working and how thoroughly that is um, integrated into his philosophy and his practice of his actual practice of magic yeah. um, that you have to have a auspicious sort of astrological um, alignment at the time in order for things to be successful. Yes. And I, it seems this is a throwaway statement, uh, but in one of the chapters, he says that, um, you know, that when, you know, starting some sort of a magical operation or any other enterprise, and then he just kind of moves on <laughs> to, to electional astrology and uh, which was a, a fascinating um, idea to me because it's, I, I think to a lot of astrologers, it's, I think a lot of astrologers do elections for non-magical purposes. Uh, we did it for this podcast. Um, but he, the idea with that is that if the, you know, especially if the moon is disposing these influences, if something is damaged, then that's going to damage the operation that you're doing, the, the work that you're doing. And, um, uh, you know, and since this is part of the, the main, the primary worldview to someone like a grip into the time, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a given, I think it's, it's very, it's an interesting, uh, the level in which they paid attention to this, this sort of thing. Right. So, um, so that comes up, for example, in making, uh, talismans. And right. if you want to, you know, invoke or, or capture the power of a specific planet, you have to do it at a specific astrological time. Um, yes. in which that planet is powerful or prominent and, and well-situated. Um, but more, more broadly, just the, how much he integrates that into doing any sort of magical working or operation is interesting because I know, I don't think that's, that's been the case necessarily, or that continued to be the case in modern times. So th does that, that sometimes creates tensions with um, modern practitioners of magic who maybe don't pay attention to astrology mm -hmm. And, and want to be able to just do whatever they're trying to do without reference to that versus going back to some of these older texts, we see Agrippa saying, you, you must take this into account at all times. And this is right. sort of the foundation of everything. So does that create a sort of tension in some ways in the, in the modern magical tradition? It, it can. Uh, I, 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 however, I'm a big believer in compartmentalizing things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I think, I think that making an astrological election for every single Thing you should do, or I think according to those rules, isn't strictly necessary every single time, uh, because some some magical systems just don't. It doesn't matter, or in things like some Solomonic magic, the election rules are pretty simple by comparison, mm -hmm. and I think it's okay to to do that. Um, but in the modern era, one of the issues is that that. It's interesting because I see a lot of astrologers not really taking magic very seriously. Um, and then, but the reverse is true. A lot of, of occultists don't take astrology seriously. They see it as too new age and woo woo for them. And um, I think that that attitude on both sides is changing a little bit uh, over time. But when I started, uh, th it, was, it was two strict camps. And, um, you know, I dare not call astrology divination and things like that. And, uh, but I see that a lot with modern occultists too, that they'll, they'll just 
completely disregard astrology as um, meaningless. And um, I think that if you're doing some sort of a Western magical system, it's good to at least take a, that into account a little bit. That doesn't mean you have to be a, a skilled astrologer because that, that's not, that's not realistic. I don't think for everybody. Hmm. Sure. The, so does he require, I mean, or you can pay astrologers to, <laughs> to do the elections for you. Yeah. Um, well, it's just interesting the extent to which it's integrated, at least in this author, in like yeah. high, high Renaissance, somebody that's trying to, to write this comprehensive work on the philosophy and, and the practice of magic and the extent to which astrology is, is very much at the center of it for him. So and an example of that is, you know, what would be an example of just some of the things he would take into account from a, a practical or a, stand, a technical standpoint if he was trying to make something like a like a Jupiter talisman or something like that, for example? Uh, the basic idea is that Jupiter would have to be in uh, dignified in some way. So in its sign of rulership or exaltation uh, in a notable place in the chart, usually the first or the 10th house. Uh, the moon has to be in reasonably good shape. Um, neither Jupiter or um, the moon should be receiving any negative influences from the malefic planets, Saturn or Mars. Um, and um, he, he goes a little deeper, which is actually pretty common. I think Picatrix does this too, where, um, you know, he doesn't want the, the um, planets for the operation to be even in the terms of uh, Saturn or Mars, uh, even in certain degrees that are, they're called dark pitted and, um, Dark pitted and um, what's the other one? Like shadowy or something? Uh, I can't think of the name right now. Um, but there are specific degrees in each sign that are considered to be malefic. Uh, I don't see a lot of people paying attention to that today. Uh, that's a lot of that's a lot to pay attention to. I think. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea is that you're you're really optimizing um, the the planets as far as you could possibly take it. And you know, a lot of these books at the time. They, they throw every single rule possible at you. And that's another place for argument that astrologers have always had uh, where they'll have 30 rules for something in the, in the arguments, whether you do all 30 or, you know, the major 10, <laughs> something like that. Uh, it's like, you know, uh, it's like William Lilly's considerations before judgment type of argument. Mm. Uh, but the, yeah. that's a basic idea. Okay. Yeah. And, and it is tricky with some of the elections because they're so highly specific for certain planets or certain types of elections that are like the ideal election that they only occur right. once in like a, a decade or something like that. It reminds Sometimes me of a lifetime. Right. Yeah. And, and so can be much more restrictive in terms of that. If you were to always shoot for like the ideal version of, of what it prescribes or, or the type of election that it prescribes, it reminds me of that famous story um, about Bonatti that I've told a couple times before. And I, I read it in like Holden. And I think he cites like Lynn Thorndike or something for it. And I, it may not be a real story, but at least it was attributed to Bonatti of this notion of there's a guy that was like down on his luck and broke and um, Bonatti took pity on him, the famous 13th century astrologer. And he made him a wax talisman at a sp certain moment in time that captured the power of, of a specific planet like Jupiter or some, some really auspicious alignment. And he made this wax figure for him as a talisman under that alignment and gave it to the person. And the, the person suddenly 
um, grew rich and successful and his life changed, but that um, he ended up feeling bad, like he had somehow, he was doing something wrong and, and that, that this use of magic was against the church or against God or something like that. And he went to a pastor who told him to destroy the talisman. So he mm -hmm. smashed it and got rid of it. And then all of a sudden his fortune disappeared and he panics. And then he goes to Benadi and asks him to make him another talisman. And Benadi exclaims, you fool that that alignment of planets won't recur for another century. And, and there's mm -hmm. nothing I can, I can do for you. And that, and that's kind of like the end of the story. And I, I don't know if that's actually like a real story that happened, but certainly when it comes to certain electional charts and, and certain auspicious alignments and the notion of capturing those by initiating or creating something at that time that captures the power of that moment, you know, there is something very tangible there that electional astrologers are familiar with in terms of certain things, not being able to recreate them and being very spaced out. Well, and also, especially with, with um, house-based talismans, uh, some of the rules that Agrippa has um, are probably once-in-a-lifetime configurations because they'll say things like, you know, you, have, you take the ruler of this house um, and the ruler of this other house, make sure that, that they're fortunate, uh, make sure that they're aspecting the moon uh, by a particular aspect, make sure that Jupiter and Venus are aspecting those planets by a certain aspect and so on and so forth. And, um, and those, those are exceedingly tough to elect for. Mm. Um, I, and I, I've tried a few of them. Sometimes you can do tricks because sometimes you can get the two houses they're talking about being ruled by the same planet if you're lucky, right? Uh, things like that. Um, but yeah, sometimes you'll never see those configurations again. When you're talking about uh, you know, Jupiter and Saturn, for instance, you know, how often are those going to be in specific uh, configurations in your lifetime? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so in terms of some of the other things, so that's one of the like sort of high magic and high astrology sort of applications that are talked about in the book, but astrology sort of comes up and is sprinkled throughout the book sometimes um, and, and becomes more or less the focus in different parts. I know you wrote a, a list of, different sections of the book that talk about astrology. And maybe we could just mention some of those really briefly. I mean, right in the opening, it talks about the elements. Then it goes into eventually later in book one, influences and rulerships of planets and signs, mm -hmm. um, the rationale for the planetary rulerships, general things in the world that are ruled by the planets through the, the idea, the notion of the hermetic notion of sympathetic magic, um, mm -hmm. that there are these lists of sort of correspondences between plants and planets and plants and stones and minerals and different things like that. Right. Um, let's see what else kinds of places ruled by the planets, colors of the planets, sacred numbers of the planets. There's also tables and sigils for the planets. Um, basic rules for electional astrology, especially for the moon, fixed stars and their natures. Um, especially in a magical context, the mansions of the moon. Um, there's a, a major chapter on that planetary hours, um, the rationale for using certain materials for astrological magic, different images of the Zodiac and their magical uses, the decans and the different images and descriptions for the decans and their magical mm -hmm. usages. 
um, images for each of the planets and the nodes, images for the mansions of the moon and the fixed stars, uh, house-based talismans, the symbols for the planets and the zodiac, um, plus a chapter. I really like that chapter that was yeah. com combining some of the glyphs. He gives rationales for the glyphs, and then he shows that you can actually combine some of the glyphs to create sort of a hybrid symbol, which I thought was actually really cool as a concept. I actually have I've a, never seen that before. Yeah, before I actually, yeah. I have a picture of that here. I just took a picture of that last night. So he's like, you know, a combination of a conjunction, especially because he says there's 120 possible conjunctions of the planets and therefore you can combine the, the glyphs of the planets in innumerable or in a bunch of different ways, like putting together the glyph of Jupiter and Saturn for a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction or to represent that. And then to use that perhaps in a, in an image or in a talisman. And it actually made me think, although he doesn't say this to, uh, have, you know, planets and signs. I mean, you can probably take this further further than what he's saying. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and then finally, he does have this chapter about how no divination is perfect without astrology, which is important philosophically. Another on some some names and significations of the planets, finding the nature and names of spirits from the nativity, and then finally gifts granted to people by the planets. So, and that's, so that's the way in which some major ways or some highlights in which astrology is just woven throughout all three books of this, this text. Yeah. It's less than the third book. Uh, Cause the third book is mostly about um, talking about the divine and that sort of a thing, but it's, you know, again, it's uh, I always think of this book as, you know, building a house. So you start at the bottom building a foundation and you just sort of build it up brick by brick. So you have these kind of uh, discrete chapters and, and, but the subject matter is just woven throughout the entire book, astrology, the elements, um, you know, a lot of philosophical ideas, such as the world soul, you know, it's, it's everywhere in the book. Yeah. And so this um, comes in three books and that's actually, they're broken up thematically and each of the three books has a specific focus, right? Yes. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty simple. It's also the three parts according to a group that are required for magic to work or to, to be magic. So you have the, the, the natural world, which is going to be uh, pretty much everything that we can see, hear, smell, touch, taste here on earth. And, um, and then you and have the book one. That's book one. Okay, so uh, book, the entirety of book one is all about the natural world and right. especially the different natural properties of things like stones and, and plants and, and different things like that. Right. And, and how those work together. Also the elements, since that's the foundation of matter. Right. Yeah. It opens yeah. with a, a very long extended discussion about the nature and the qualities of the different, the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. One of the best write-ups on the elements that, I, that I've seen. Hmm. Uh, because it's it's uh, a lot a lot of people when they talk about the elements it's 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 uh, they basically kind of go through a quick discussion of the natures and just kind of move on. Uh, right. but this is this is a very detailed discussion of uh, the qualities of each of these elements, uh, and it's in a, in a very almost poetic way. I think. Yeah, you're right. I was surprised by that because usually the treatments of the elements are very sparse, and it's hard, especially in some ancient texts, to find extended 
discussions of them. And I was always frustrated by that in the Hellenistic tradition that many of those didn't survive. So it was cool to see that take such a central role right at the very beginning of this text um, at, at the very, as a very, as a foundation sort of. And I think it's important to internalize that because that's the very nature of astrology. I mean, you know, the, if you break down astrology far enough, it, it's really how these elemental combinations are interacting with each, with each other in a lot of ways. And um, so just internalizing a basic material like that is, is important. And um, I was surprised when I was translating it. And I had to think very long and hard about the words that I was going to use because it, um, it sounded so abstract, but also, like I said, so poetic at the same time. It was amazing. Yeah. And so he wrote this in Latin, which was the educated language in Europe of the day that allowed people from different countries to like communicate and write works on philosophy and science and, and also the occult with e- with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, even if their like primary language was, was different, like between let's say French and German or Spanish or what have you. Um, how, how did you learn Latin or, or why do you know Latin? <laughs> um, well, why it's because I wanted to read books that I wanted to read. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm self-taught and um, I, I just spent a lot of time. Um, I, this isn't my first project. My first project was uh, the Picatrix. And um, when I saw that Christopher Warnock and uh, John Michael Greer were publishing theirs, I, I stopped. Um, I, I didn't feel confident enough about the, um, about my translation at that time. I look back on it now, it's actually pretty good, <laughs> but, um, but th- that's where I started. And I, I essentially went through, I, I learned uh, basic grammar and uh, which in turn teaches you a lot of basic vocabulary. And then uh, I just went through with the dictionaries and logic and then my knowledge of astrology and things like that to sort of piece it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took, it took me forever. So I'm, I'm a slow translator. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's pretty impressive. I know it's like, there's other people like, like Ben Dykes, for example, learned Latin in high schools who kind of like knew it by happenstance, but you teaching yourself this because you wanted to be able to read texts like this is really interesting and impressive. And then results in, you know, being able to translate, you know, such a pivotal work such as this and have it published. And I wasn't planning on that. Okay. It wasn't, wasn't part of my plan for anybody to see it actually. Um, but you know, people like Christopher Warnock and some of my other friends, uh, Austin was another one, uh, who really pushed me to you know, make it public. Mm, okay. I, I didn't, I didn't really think anybody would want to read it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask about that in the publication because you actually ended up finding a, a pretty major publisher to publish mm-hmm. it through. And I was really impressed by what a good job they did with the, the production quality of this text is just like pretty, amazing. I, I took some pictures of it. Um, you know, it comes in, it's these three hardcover books that comes in a really nice slip case. Um, but just the, the publication quality, it was by, published by inner traditions, which, um, previously was like a, a publisher that did like philosophical works, like the Corpus Hermeticum and other things like right. that. But I, I know in recent years, they've been publishing more astrology titles and things like that, or it seems like they're heading in that direction. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems that way. They've, uh, they all, they, they actually published, um, some, uh, Afro-Cuban material, which I didn't realize until after, after the fact. Uh, so they're, they're definitely branching out and, uh, they've been 
amazing to work with. Very happy with them. Yeah, but, I'm really good. And I was just going to say the the book also came out. I was pleasantly surprised about the book. I, I would I would have been happy with the paperback. Um, so, sure. Yeah. So, but no, they actually took it as a really important project. It seems like and put a lot of effort into the presentation and the print quality and even the um, images and the diagrams. Um, it seems like they took and they cleaned up quite a bit in terms of some of the images from the original print or the original manuscripts um, are, are presented very cleanly and very nicely in this print version. Yes. And they also, uh, one of the issues I had was I wanted the, um, the margin notes to be retained from the original because those have never been uh, in any other edition. Mm-hmm. And from a formatting standpoint, it's a little strange to do. Right. And um, so I, I ins- heavily insisted on that and they did it. Um, and uh, probably more di- difficult for me than them. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, they basically did everything that I, that I wanted. And that, um, the editing sure. was, I'm really happy with the editors. It's, and the, the margin notes, that's something I remember from like William Lilly. And, and what you mean by that is, you have the body of the text of the paragraphs, but then on the right side or the left side of the paragraph on the outer edge of the page, there's little um, notes almost like um, in order to tell you what that chapter, what that section is about. Um, Like here's one from chapter 23 and there's just a little note in the margin on the right of the paragraph that says the circle is the most perfect figure. So it's like summarizing what that paragraph is about. Yeah, it's almost like, um, you know, Renaissance highlighting. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, that reminds me of William Lilly's text where he does that as well about a century later because this book was published in 1533 Mm -hmm. and Lilly published Christian Astrology in 1647. One of the things I found really fascinating was that the only other English translation of Agrippa's three books um, was published in 1651 by some anonymous person. We don't know who it is. JF. JF. We just know (laughs) the initial, it was published on the initials JF, but he published that in 1651, which is only four years after William Lilly's book, Christian Astrology came out, Mm -hmm. which ended up being the single most influential book. It was the first major book on astrology that was written in English, the first major textbook on astrology written in English, um, because Lily made the deliberate decision to write it in English for an English-speaking audience rather than writing it in Latin so that it could only be read by people that, that knew Latin in 1647. And then just a few years later, we have this book being translated into English at the time which is pretty major in terms of also founding, you know, centuries of how that influenced the magical tradition. That was the only version until recently. Okay. So, so even, the, even the Donald Tyson version that everyone has is still that translation. Okay. So the, and that's the one that was published by Llewellyn. That's like a single thick like, pa- paperback <laughs> book. Right and it says by Donald Tyson, but it's actually just a sort of a commentary because he puts, he has a lot of footnotes and stuff, but it's right. largely just a reprint of that translation from, from way back in 1651. He did modernize the English. So he, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, modernized the spellings. He added paragraphs, broke up the run-on sentences that they liked to do back then. Okay. Um, the J, the JF character is interesting because there there's two opinions. Uh, one is that it's someone named um, James Freak who was just I think it was just noted in some um, bibliographical material somewhere, um, but no one knows anything about him. Uh, another opinion is that it's John French, who was an alchemist. And that sort of seems to be the prevailing opinion. But um, what's interesting is the astrology is just so butchered in that translation that it, it, it sort of makes me question that. And I, I don't have a good explanation why he would have made the mistakes that he did. Right. So part of your analysis and part of your motivation for doing your translation and why you thought it was necessary to retranslate this text and, and publish a new edition of it as you as you have in the past few months is that the this other translation going back to 1651 that everyone's using that the translator while he did a like a passable job um he made a bunch of errors and there's some things that he misunderstood about agrippa's text including a lot some of the technical astrological terms that were used it was almost as if he wasn't an astrologer wasn't familiar enough with astrology in order to correctly translate some of those concepts into English. Yeah. And, and some very common terms back then, such as, you know, perfections. Uh, he consistently translated that as perfection. And then Donald Tyson footnoted that as saying, okay, well, that's a conjunction of the sun and the moon, the fuller new moon or something like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is in a section where Agrippa is talking about uh, different predictive tools. He talks about solar revolutions. He talks about perfections, but then, the footnote is, oh, and also solar revolution was noted wrong in Tyson as well, as meaning um, just just simply someone's birthday, which technically, you know, isn't correct. Okay, so so there were errors in the original 1651 translation, and then some of those errors are then exacerbated or, or in some instances interpreted even in an even worse way in the modern commentary in 1993 that everybody's using. So. Right. A large part of your translation, or the advantage of your translation is that you've actually studied um, Renaissance and medieval astrology so that you're familiar with the technical terminology. You're very mm -hmm. familiar with the technical terminology. And therefore, when you go through this text and Agrippa starts throwing out uh, technical terminology that he hasn't defined because it's not primarily an astrological manual, he's taking for granted that you already understand many of those concepts. Um, you you can translate those concepts and, and interpret them correctly as you render it into into English. Yeah, and there was there was there was a lot more than I that I that I realized before. Uh, you know, things like the names of stones are sometimes uh, suspect. Uh, JF had a habit of translating a lot of stones as a jet stone, which I don't know why. Um, there was one where it's supposed to be a ruby. And he translates it as jet. Um, also, someplace where there's an incense recipe and the word, it's an obscure word in Latin, uh, credabe. And JF translated as jet again, which is an unusual ingredient for <laughs> incense. Um, and um, I found out later on it was amber, which makes a lot more sense. Uh, there's a lot of things like that. Um, one of the funny ones I thought was it's in one of the it's on the chapter on Earth. Uh, so I don't know what chapter it is, chapter four or five, something like that. 
um, he makes a throwaway statement that Earth is entirely changeable. This is the JF translation. And then Donald Tyson makes a footnote saying, well, Agrippa didn't read his Plato properly. And I looked at the Latin. It's correct. It's supposed to be unchangeable like Earth would be. So it's a lot okay. of little things like that. If you're not, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily notice if you don't know the Latin. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and then also, in doing this translation, you're actually able to take advantage of the fact that there was a, a critical edition of the Latin text of Agrippa that was published in 1992 or 1993, right? I think it was 91 or two. It was before Tyson came out with his. Okay, so. And so this was done by an academic scholar who specialized in Agrippa's work and specialized in, in the study of Renaissance texts and things like that, mm-hmm. and also as well as editing of and comparing of manuscripts and actually went through the different editions and reconstructed what the original text was, but then also mm-hmm. um, did a lot of work identifying uh, the sources that Agrippa drew on in different parts of his text, right? Yes, and that got me started. Uh, so because of the internet, I was able to uh, get access to a lot of the, a lot of these books, um, the exact books that the exact editions that the gripper probably had in a lot of cases. And um, so the company uh, the critical edition, um, she first of all, I think it's interesting because people but you know, since the three books was always printed, except for the original manuscript in 1510, um, a lot of people assume that there wouldn't be that many variations, but, you know, considering that it was all, all the type was set by hand, there were a lot of variations also with the graphics because those were redone by hand every single time. And um, so it it got me started, but when I was able to um, get access to the books themselves, um, I actually made changes from the critical edition as well because I, I just found things that now are really easily available. Um, but I also uh, found a couple of errors in the critical editions because I was comparing it with the uh, 1533 and in the, in the 1550 version as well, editions. So I, mean, okay. I, I, I cross-compared those two editions with JF with Tyson. So I did all, I compared all those texts at the same time. Right. And one of the things I, I thought was really interesting in one of your conclusions was that um, this text that he's constantly drawing on on different ancient or contemporary texts throughout the entirety of the three books of occult philosophy so that Agrippa in some ways represents a compilation and a synthesis of a bunch of different philosophical and occult works that existed up to that point. And um, while some people have assumed that he had access to like secret texts because of possibly being involved in a, some sort of secret society in Paris, um, in fact, one of the things that you pointed out was he was basically just drawing on a lot of works that were available at that point in time in, in the mm-hmm. 16th century. Yes, and I, I do think that secret group, the little secret society that he was part of, I think that was help because there are certain things like i i don't think he had a, a copy of picatrix for instance mm-hmm. um so even though it, he draws on it seems to draw on it heavily in some places it feels to me this is my opinion but i feel like that those were from notes 
So maybe someone that he knew had access to it or he was able to see a copy of it um, because they're not, there aren't a lot of just one-to-one quotes from Picatrix. There's a lot of mixing quotes with, from Picatrix with other books as well to kind of flush it out more. Mm. Um, and it's, it's very specific sections. Um, he doesn't use Picatrix's material on elections, for instance, at all. Um, it's, you know, it's only the Deccans, Mansions of the Moon, and then a couple of just throwaway sentences uh, that actually aren't even astrology, um, which surprised me. Um, so that one, I think, was notes. I think there were a few that were like that. But for the most part, uh, yeah, I mean, these were books that were easily available during the Renaissance, you know, Pacino, um, Johannes Reuchlin, um, people like that. Uh, and that's that's the majority of the, of the book. Uh, Pico uh, Della uh, de uh, Marandola, you know, is another one that he's, he almost quotes half the book. In there. Right. And you, that's one of the things that's cool and useful about your translation is you note in the footnotes, every time he is drawing on uh, sentences from some earlier text that can be identified. And in that way, you're able to sort of demonstrate as you're reading through the book, just how much he's taking and incorporating sentences or entire paragraphs from different sources. And then fusing them together in his own text. And what's even more interesting is certain sentences are made up of many, many quotes, which is crazy to me. I mean, it's, it's, I can't imagine writing a book that way. Um, not, I, mean, I don't mean that in a moral way, but, but, you know, taking, you know, those of us with a lot of books, imagine taking your library and doing nothing but taking quotes from books that you have and then formulating your own argument from, with those quotes. Yeah, I mean, it actually makes sense to me because one of the things that this book really reminded me of was Manly Palmer Hall and his book, what is it, The the Secret Teaching of All Ages, correct? which was written in like, what, the 1920s? And he was in his, he was only in his 20s. He was like 22 or 23 or something. Yeah, early to mid 20s for sure. Yeah, so Manly Palmer Hall, this is in the early 20th century, but he was super young and he wrote this you know, huge compilation of information of everything he was able to find from earlier cult traditions that were available to him at that point as, as a huge compilation. And, but he was super young at that point. And um, this book, the three books of occult philosophy, Agrippa was only 24 when he wrote the first right. version of this in 1510, right? Right. Uh, it was a little bit smaller than we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the order of the chapters were different, um, but it was recognizable for sure. Yeah. So, so large part. So it, even yeah. though it was then 23, 24 years before he eventually published the final version in, um, what, 1533. And then he, he died sadly two years after that, two years later, only in his like late forties, um, the fact that he wrote so much of the core of the text, which would still largely be the same as the final version when he was only 24 and 15, 10, um, it makes me think of that and just makes me think of like me being in my 20s writing Wikipedia entries based on all the <laughs> texts that I had been reading going in college and, and going to Kepler College and also reading translations from Project Hindsight. And so much of what you do at a certain stage of your learning is at, a, at an earlier stage of your learning is just synthesizing and, and trying to work out all of the information of your teachers and your immediate sources 
and there's this impulse to want to like write everything down that you're learning and, and get it all in a in a certain um frame of reference that like makes sense almost like your study notes in some sense and yeah it you know that's still a task it's not necessarily a negative thing i, I just recognize that as a, as a thing that sometimes certain students will do at certain stages and it's but it's pretty bold for him to do mm -hmm. that because he's he's essentially uh bucking against you know not just people like Pacino. Um, but he's bucking against the church. Um, and you know, the, the, his saving grace really was that he, he, he knew a lot of powerful people and, but the, this, you know, we don't know a lot about the secret organization, uh, and, and how much influence they would have had on him. Um, and he was, and he was the young person in the group too. There were, there were older people who, Put a grip, you know. Put Agrippa sort of in the central position in that in that group. Um, in, in a lot of ways, he was kind of the person to vet members of the group. Uh, so it's interesting that this twenty-something-year-old—I don't know when he started it—the uh, the group um, was in, in some ways being looked up to by people in their forties and fifties. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I we don't know to what degree that group influenced the material in three books. Um, but, uh, but the fact that he was able just to do that and it's, and it's coherent, it, it doesn't feel fragmented or incomplete or anything like that. It's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. Yeah. Well, and, and he was kind of a, a polymath and a, a man of, he, he was like an educated, talented scholar, um, but he wore also many different hats, right? He did well, uh, like a lot of educated people at that time. He was a doctor, uh, but he he worked for a lot of um, you know kings and noble people. He was um, um, he did medicine, he did tutoring, uh, he was uh, a secret agent allegedly, <laughs> um, and um, he worked as uh, he was a general, I believe, in um, for for one of the kings or, or lords, and. So he, he was definitely respected as this as the scholar at the time. And there was an entry in um, the dictionary on Western uh, esoterica, um, the one edited by uh, Honograph. Um, but the entry on Agrippa says that it's a shame that he's only known for three books of occult philosophy, because if, if he had never written that book, he would he would have been you know, probably respected by academia as this great scholar. Right. Kind of, he, kind of spoiled he, it in academia. He wrote other books and other works that were semi-important or influential, especially later in his life, a book on sort of skepticism. On skepticism. Uh, and that one's notable because of the famous retraction. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is he also wrote a book um, on, on almost like proto-feminism. Uh, by today's standards, it's probably not very feminist. But um, but back then, you know, it's it was uh, it's an important thing because he was, you know, he was exalting the central importance of women in a in a in a way that most scholars and texts at that time just would not have touched that subject whatsoever, and they didn't take it very kindly either. Um, but yeah, it's 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 amazing that he was able to do what he did. You know, he he um, exonerated uh, a woman being accused of witchcraft um, by exposing corruption in the system. And all these things did not make him very popular, but the fact that he was, you know, uh, 
going in that direction is, uh, I think, is immensely important and and not and and you know overlooked. I think because you know people just know him as this you know writer of, a, of an occult book, uh, but he was very forward thinking for the time. Yeah, and the the um, doctor thing and the the polymath or man of different hats thing, as well as an educated scholar, reminds me of somebody who would have been his contemporary, which is Nostradamus, who you know was a French physician, but also astrologer and had access to many different texts that he was reading and um, sort of polymath who who did many different things. Yeah, exactly. And or someone like Ficino, mm. except Ficino was more church based, but. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he's a remarkable figure. Uh, I mean, he's, he's sort of the prototype of Faust. I mean, Faust is, is sort of based on him a lot. Let me share, uh, why don't we talk a little bit more about his life? I did find, um, birth data for him. Um, I don't know how reliable this is. Um, Holden gave it and there was a source, uh, in my notes, which said that, um, that it's dirty data, but that somebody quotes Gadbury, John Gadbury for part of it. And yeah, so the date may be correct. Time may or may not be correct, but for whatever it's worth, what we've got is September 14th, 1486 at 324 AM in Cologne, Germany with early Virgo rising. Um, Mars up in Gemini in the tenth house, which you remarked about and laughed at yesterday when I when you, we first looked at this because of his kind of he had some some rough times in terms of his career and getting himself into trouble at different points throughout the course of his life. Um, the sun is at twenty nine degrees of Virgo, and um, interestingly, if this is accurate, he was born just after a full moon. The moon had just moved into Aries. Um, there had just been a full moon in Pisces, but the moon was in Aries, uh, Saturn in Sagittarius, Jupiter in Capricorn, Mercury in Libra, and Venus in uh, Leo, and the degree of the midheaven in late Taurus. So he, um, you know, he was interested and in, had all these different intellectual interests, but because of his interests in both the occult as well as theology, and scholarship, it sounded like he kept getting into trouble due to some of this throughout the course of his life, right? Several times. He had, um, I, I, my, my thought about him is that uh, I think we all know this person, or we might be this person, um, who is probably thinking correctly about things, uh, but doesn't understand why other people don't believe the same thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so he, he would voice his opinions a lot and he would just put himself in the, in the hot water a lot. Uh, the, the example with the witch trial is a good example uh, because he, in his mind, I'm sure he was thinking, okay, well, I'm exposing corruption and they're accusing this woman who is innocent. So people are going to thank me for exposing this, you know, the situation. And then he ended up getting thrown out of town. Uh, and that happened over and over again for his defensive women. Uh, he was, um, this happened about two or three times in his life. He was um, reported to the Inquisition and then they would, um, they would, uh, um, they would um, um, do this investigation in secret behind his back. And in some cases he wouldn't, he, you know, wouldn't know what's going on. And other times he would just be far away while they're investigating him and then he would have to defend himself after the fact through letters. 
Um, so it's just this ongoing, you know, pattern of people just, you know, um, you know not liking his ideas. Uh, ironically, he wasn't really attacked for um, his occult practice until late in his life, uh, while while it was in production, because uh, copies had already had been leaking out for a while. That's actually the reason why he did this version of it was because somehow a copy of the manuscript or an early draft of it leaked out and people were talking about it. And so Agrippa took control of it and he said, okay, well, I'm going to do this my way. And if I'm going to be accused of my sins, at least let them be my own sins. Uh, and right. um, yeah, so it's, it's a, he, I think he died and this is, this is speculation, um, but he was put in jail for um, debts that he owed and he died after being released as a result of a probably a weakened uh, system. Okay. So, so yeah, so he, even though he originally wrote the initial version of the book in 1510, that version leaked out and he went on to have like a long career doing other stuff. Right. Um, including, I'm not sure what year that was. It was like in the 1520s, he wrote that skeptical work, which criticized many different fields of knowledge. Right. Um, and then it wasn't until 1533 that he finally publishes. He goes back to this book, finishes it and publishes it. But there's some debate at that point about whether he was still a practicing occultist and whether he believed in all of that um, because he had written the skeptical work several years earlier. And um, also because in the final version of this book, he seems to almost express some skepticism about it, saying, I think at the end that he wrote it when he was a younger man and mm -hmm. his thought had matured or something like that. So there's right. some debate today about the extent to which um, the final publication towards the end of his life represented his actual views or whether he was just doing it in order to, like you said, get a handle on it because the earlier manuscripts that had errors had already leaked out and so he wanted to fix the errors in his original writings. Yeah, that was one part of it. Uh, the, the, the book that you're, you're describing has the, his famous retraction. And a lot of people sort of take this out of context. You know, we don't know, we can never know what he was thinking, of course. Um, but the book that this came from, uh, it was called On the Vanity of the Arts and Sciences. And it was, um, they basically had chapters on every area of human learning. And the basic um, theme of the book is to show how human knowledge is, is actually quite uh, frail and incomplete compared to you know, God, for instance. And um, so that, that retraction is part of that. And, but when you think about, you know, th this is a little bit of in, in three books too, where Agrippa is putting a, a primal emphasis on anything that's related to God directly. So, you know, the magic that we do has to relate to God and the knowledge that we do has to relate to God. And as long as we keep God in that central, central position, then we're not going to veer too far off course. And so I, he was kind of lampooning um, scholars and church people who just really thought that they were, you know, the end all be all of knowledge. Um, and uh, so that, that's where that retraction came from. Uh, but, you know, keeping, keeping in mind that he was most likely revising three books while that was happening while he was writing that. Okay. So the fact that he was still like working on this occult book and getting ready to publish it for you 
you take that to mean that it's more likely that you think that he still did have some belief and investment in this, and that's why he eventually did go on to actually publish this work towards the end of his life. Yeah, it was definitely to, to save his reputation a little bit. Uh, I think he wanted to have that sort of final stamp on things. But I, um, from what I'm gathering from the 1510 manuscript, is I, I, the, the final version is a, is a lot more nuanced. And um, uh, so I think he really, you know, a lot of years have passed. And he, there were also some books that were published during the interim, which I think changed him a lot. Um, you know, two of those are Roy Clemens, uh, on the art of Kabbalah. And another one is not a very well-known book today. It's by Francisco, uh, Giorgio, um, called, um, uh, the Harmonia Mundi or the harmony of the world. And that, that book is physically larger than three books. It's a, it's an immense book. Um, but it's, it's a, Giorgio was a, was a Kabbalist, a Christian Kabbalist and, um, and, you know, he, he attempted to do some of what Agrippa was doing to have this kind of overarching worldview uh, with all the esoteric world, but it wasn't quite as um, esoteric as by our standards as Agrippa would be. Uh, he, he kind of stays away from, the, from what we would call magic today. Uh, he goes into a lot of astrology. He goes into Kabbalah and that kind of a thing. But that if a lot of Agrippa's astrological material um, and a lot of his material on Kabbalah ironically came from that book mm. of all places. Okay. Yeah. So that mentions brings up something that's really important that, that is a major factor in this book, especially I think in the third book, which is that he incorporates a lot of um, Kabbalistic and a lot of Kabbalah into his work and into some of the magical stuff. And this ended up playing a major role in terms of bringing some of that stream into more into Western occultism and sort of permanently imprinting some of the Kabbalah on Western occultism from that point forward. Yeah. And what's fascinating about that is that Christian Kabbalah was mostly formulated by Pico, uh, who was a student of Pacino's and, um, and, and Pico was young Pico Mernandola. Uh, yeah. Who famously wrote like one of the largest and supposedly most scathing attacks on astrology um, ever to be written, I guess, right. <laughs> either contemporaneous or a few decades before this. It's a little bit before. And um, in fact, I believe he was, yeah, Grippa would have been a child probably when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pico was, 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 he died young. He was in his thirties. Uh, but he believed that um, he was one of the early people who believed, you know, like Agrippa, there was this overarching uh, oneness to all of knowledge. And so he attempted to bring in um, Kabbalah with astrology, Western esotericism, and uh, he started that, that 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 whole chain. And then um, Johannes Reuchlin picked picked up, you know up where he left off, and that was that was hugely influential to Agrippa. Um, but Agrippa would not have, I don't think, realized the um, the youth of the Christian Kabbalistic movement. Because I think he believed that it was probably very you know went back thousands of years. He's right. only less than 50 years old, probably. Right. But because of, I guess, the Christian context of him being in Europe and, and the historical belief in the historiosity of the Bible narrative, the notion that Hebrew 
and the Hebrew letters were like the oldest and, and the other languages were subsequently derived from that. It seems like for that reason, he places um, Hebrew letters as being super central and important in a magical context due to the uh, magical properties of both letters as well as numbers. Yeah, so the magical properties of the of the letters, the, the words constructed from those letters, uh, even the construction of the alphabet itself has has a, a, a magical component to it because you know they were according to him they were constructed via um, celestial motions and um, have a numerical you know uh, component to it as well. So it's not just you know random. This is going to be the letter A. <laughs> Um, you know, he believed that there is a, a, a great, a greater philosophical meaning behind the forms of the letters themselves. I mean, so it goes as deep as that, not just, you know, uh, what we think it was just regular, you know, Kabbalistic thought. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's really important. There's also some Pythagorean numerology that, that plays an important role at different points. And there's this whole extended section in one of the books where he goes through each of the basic numbers and talks about the symbolic and, and occult or, or metaphysical meaning of, of each of these numbers, starting with the number one and then the number two and then right. three and so on and so forth. Yes. And that's one of those areas of the book that um, there's some tables um, for each of the numbers that summarizes all of this material. And uh, not all of the elements in those tables are mentioned in those chapters. Um, since I have a PDF of my book, I can search for things really, really easily. And uh, so I, it's interesting because I've had some people ask me where such and such in the table comes from. And I was able to Google it and, and I found out, oh, it's mentioned in book three somewhere and nowhere else. Um, so th those tables are actually very interesting. It's a, it's a really good summary. Hmm. Okay. And you guys tried to reproduce the um, images and the symbols and, and glyphs used in the original manuscripts as faithfully as possible. And it seems like did a really good job in terms of that. So for those watching the video version, this is an image you sent me from one of the actual manuscripts of some symbols or sigils used for certain fixed stars like the Pleiades or Aldebaran. And then what it looks like, I guess this is from your actual text, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and then other symbols for uh, different things like the planets. These are the uh, geomantic uh, symbols. These are supposed to be constructed from connecting the dots of the geomantic uh, signs. Mm, okay. Uh, and then there's other illustrations like images of like a human being and um, the symmetry involved in the human body. Um, different symbols for Jupiter. For the, so this is for for symbols for Jupiter. Correct. And I I didn't include it in the graphics because the layout is a bit strange. But mm -hmm. I also found that the sigils for a couple of the sigils for Mercury and the Moon were flipped around in the JF version. Mm, okay. So is that one of the ones, for example, that you were talking about with? Um, the supposed talisman that was found on Joseph Smith having like an error on it comes from some of the things like that. Yeah. So specifically the Jupiter. So the intelligence of Jupiter that's on the screen, there's a, a gap in the top loop 
um, that's only in like in specific editions. And, mm. uh, and that was just basically recreated, which I think is something that happens in magical books. Uh, some little oops by a scribe <laughs> gets reproduced. Right. Um, and so some of these are for the planets, for example, are tables that give different n- numerical values at different points in the table. And these are supposed to be inscribed on the, the talismans or the images. That's one use. Um, that's also how the, the sigils were constructed. Mm, okay. It's a, it's a relation with the letters and the numbers. Because so when you, when, you, when you construct it in a certain way, you have a, a name of a, of a particular celestial spirit. Okay. Um, and other symbols. And then here's the cover. Not my pencil. No. Okay. Yeah. The li- <laughs> library copies always have that. Um, yeah. So let's see other things that we meant to talk about, um, about this work or things that make it unique or important in terms of, especially in astrological context and for astrologers. Um, he drew a lot on the work of Ms. Marsilio Ficino. It looked like, mm-hmm. Um, who was, of course, the famous translator of the Corpus Hermeticum, as well as um, the works of Plato. But um, Marsilio Ficino was also super into sympathetic magic and um, using electional astrology for, for different things, right? Yes, and, and Ficino was much, had a much more narrow focus compared to Agrippa. Because uh, Ficino was kind of anti-magic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, except for astrological magic, that was okay because that's ob- that obviously has I mean, obviously has a divine influence. Um, but Agrippa had a had a wider definition, which I think which I think was to our benefit that he was able to widen that that uh, meaning a bit or mm-hmm. focus. Um, but yeah, Ficino was um, he he definitely was influenced by the Picatrix, and um, and he was he was probably the most major source i think wide widely read source for astro- astrological magic uh, you know because picatrix was never printed it was only in manuscripts uh, mm-hmm. but Ficino was much more you know, much more popular okay he, he quoted directly from picatrix quite a bit so got it and then there was another author i know in some of the um specific electional rules for certain type making certain types of astrological images um, that Agrippa gives, you said a lot of that is, is sort of word for word copied from an earlier Arabic author from the eighth or ninth century, right? Right. Dabidim and Kura. And um, that, that was in Latin. It was, transla- it was translated in Latin uh, by somebody. And um, I didn't realize that book was so, um, I guess, pop- I don't know if popular is the right word, but I didn't realize it was that available. Uh, but uh, Agrippa almost quoted the whole book. Yeah, because it's just a little short book. It it's actually survives. Book. I think yeah. um, Christopher Warnock published a translation of it, right? He did. In fact, uh, John Macro Greer did, Greer did, I think there's early translation, and then John Macro Greer did another version, and he put them both in the same book, and it's still pretty small. Mm, okay. Yeah, so that gets incorporated into uh, Agrippa's work. I, I think it's also incorporated into the Picatrix. So it's interesting how some of these same works keep getting brought back and incorporated into different compilations or, or reincorporated at different points. Yeah, the famous uh, Hermes on the 15 you know, stars, herbs, stones, etc. Uh, that's in Picatrix, it's in Ficino, and it's in Agrippa. 
Mm. It's pretty much everywhere. Okay. Um, are there any other major sources astrologically that are relevant in terms of, I mean, I know at some point, you know, he starts mentioning certain things like reception and he's talking about the conjunction being the most powerful aspect, but then, um, the trine being next and being really positive, but that if you have like a trine with reception, then it becomes as powerful as a conjunction, which I thought was really, really interesting. That is interesting. And I think that what was a little bit of a surprise to me was I thought there would be Bonatti somewhere in there because Bonatti mm-hmm. is so ubiquitous and um, but there's no Bonatti. And so this astrology comes from Ficino, um, a, cu- a couple of books by Alkindi. Uh, which were popular in Latin and um, Ibn Kura and that book Harmonia Mundi, but he didn't have a lot of other sources, which I really expected to see that in there. Uh, the work on the sigils is from, um, that's one of the only books I wasn't able to get a copy of. Um, it's in a manuscript in England. Uh, that's a very obscure book. Um, I think Ibn Ezra is mentioned at one Ibn point. Ezra. Yeah. And also Leopold of Austria. Yes, I forgot about him. Yeah, so the the work on the Deccans, uh, and I think the Mansions of the Moon, are a combination of Picatrix, uh, Leopold, and, oh, and um, um, Johann uh, uh, Angelus, Compilatio. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, there's that too. Um, but there's, there isn't like this huge white, I expected more grimoires too. And there were no grimoires as, as we would think of it. Um, so he's, it, it's, it, it's interesting how he extracted that, that material. Uh, none of the election rules come from Picatrix, which I expected there to be. Uh, that comes from you know, other sources, mostly Ficino. Mm, okay. I guess indirect, but <laughs> So part of though the reason for this is important to bring it back to the present is that this is one of the works that when some early practitioners started getting into traditional astrological magic, for example, in the late 90s or early 2000s, like Christopher Warnock, this would have been one of the only works that was available to them that gave them some of these um, yeah. magical electional rules um, through that English translation from the 17th century. And then it's only over the course of the past decade or two since that time that we've then subsequently had um, translations of some of the source texts that Agrippa was drawing on, like the Picatrix or some of the different astrological right. texts. But this was initially one of the only things that was available, um, but it was in that flawed translation. And now Correct. we finally have a, an authoritative translation that correctly expresses the authentic original work of Agrippa? Yeah, I tried to be very, very careful about the translation. Um, I I kept the sentence structures. I had to break up the sentences later on because it would be unreadable. But I try to keep things very one-to-one, you know, translation-wise. I, I, I tried not to become too poetic and I didn't go outside the lines. And if there was some something I wasn't sure about, I would footnote it with the Latin. Uh, so that way, if, if someone questions that at least you know, they can look it up themselves and you know there there are some very enticing things that i would love to learn the identity of especially some of the plants that seem to be unknown uh, but yeah i try to be very very methodical about it and uh, the astrological sections were, were pretty easy to translate <laughs> right 
um, because he was drawing on sometimes very old works, like like the work of Pliny from the first century for some of the plants and stones and, and our knowledge even of which plants and stones that's referring to in the original Latin text of Pliny are still ambig- ambiguous or unknown to this day. And I don't think Agrippa would have known some of them. Mm. I think he was just copying some of these things. Sure. Um, let's see. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is sometimes I thought it was interesting. I was curious what terms you were translating because there's some terms that as an astrologer or somebody only familiar with astrological texts, I'm not familiar with because you don't see them in purely astrological texts, but they are common texts in magic or or terms used in magic, like Mm -hmm. the word operations that you're translating as operations and other words like binding. What are the Latin terms that are you're translating for those two words? Uh, Operation is almost the same. It's like operatio, which means work. Uh, I left operation because it's common in a lot of magical texts because it sort of implies, um, I don't know, like uh, like you're compiling a lot of different elements together to for a certain result. Um, and binding, uh, legatio, tying. Um, but I use binding because that's the common word that people would use. And so that's a very common... Uh, magical practice where essentially you're just you're you're tying together either physically or through some other means uh, two things together. So, uh, for instance, um, love spell. <laughs> you would bind uh, a, a, rep- a representation of one person with a representation of another person, probably tie- literally tying in cases like that. But you could bind your 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 will with something else too. There's a lot of different uses for it. Um, but in, in Agrippa, it's pretty literal. It's like actually literally tying things together. He quotes uh, some uh, verses with that too, you know, tying uh, you know, yellow thread a certain number of times around something for a certain you know, goddess, for instance. Um, but it's to, it's, to, it's to combine two different elements together. Right. Or forces it- or whatever you want to say. And in some of the astrological elections and versions of that, you're creating um, a talisman or you're creating like an electional chart. And then they're sometimes creating like two different electional charts and images of those and then combining them together if you're trying to bind those two things. Correct. That's one thing you can do as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, some of these aren't explicitly astrological, but some of them can be astrological. Mm -hmm. You can make it astrological. Right. (laughs) Um, okay. Are there any other terms like that that are, are terms that maybe somebody familiar with astrology who's picking up this book for the first time may not know, but somebody that's familiar with magic would be familiar with or where, where you're translating it using terms that are understood by practitioners of magic? I tried to footnote a lot, a lot of these terms. Bindings I didn't footnote because um, he describes it pretty, de- you know, pretty um, detailed. But um, like one of the words like allegation is one word, um, which is to uh, something you hang around your neck. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is um, a phylactery, which is a um, like a magical protection, like a shield or something like that. Um, there's a lot of little things like that. By footnote, that kind of thing. I wonder Those how much terms. I mean, Lily kind of established our our conventions for a lot of conventions for 
English and astrology. And I wonder to what extent the JF translation of Agrippa in, in 1651 established a lot of the conventions then that became common or used in English and in magical circles after that point. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, um, just th thinking about some of these terms like like operation or binding or what have you. Yeah, and also th this this is coming at a time too when there's also a lot of um, alchemical material coming out in English too. Mm. Um, and some other explicitly magical things like the discovery of witchcraft is a, a famous one. Uh, th that was all happening at this time. Um, you know, I, I think Lily, Lily is one of the earlier ones though. It was a bit of yeah. a trailblazer. 1647. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing connected with some of this is he talks about a section about paying attention to omens at the beginning of your, your magical operation, um, as well as chapters on this connected on auguries and just blending different types of divination. And he has a discussions about a bunch of different types of divination. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's something that's kind of a lost art. A lot of people don't do this. Um, so it's observing essentially nature um, as you're, when you're about ready to do something. So if, you know, something unusual happens, like, um, you know, a bird hits the window <laughs> or something like that, you would pay attention to that, or you would, uh, you're outside and you see the birds, you know, flying in a, in a certain direction, or you see a particular animal walking across your path, uh, that could be good or bad. Um, you know, if you're out in the woods and you suddenly see a pig, you know, that might mean something because pigs aren't usually there. Um, so it's a paying attention to things like that. He does talk a little bit about, um, you know, the reading of entrails, which has fallen out of favor quite a bit nowadays. Um, but he talks about that as well. And, and that the Roman priests would have also paid attention as they're doing reading the entrails that they would pay attention to, you know, any notable things like, you know, birds or something like that, that was in the area. Yeah, the flight of birds was a huge, it, augury was a major um, source of type of divination that was used in the Roman Empire. Yes, uh, and that little, that chapter is a very confusing one because it's, um, it's sourced directly word for word from uh, Michael Scotus. And the terminology he gives for each augury is very confusing. Uh, they're not, I don't even know what language it comes from. It's not Latin. And um, <laughs> but he does something where he says there's, uh, I I'm trying to remember the number. I think it was 20, I think it was uh, 24. I think it was 12 on the left and 12 on the right. Like, so if you have 12 things of birds coming from the left and 12 things of birds coming from the right, and then he lists them all out and they don't match. There's like things missing in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the original source got confused and then Agrippa just, wrote it all out, but it's a very confusing chapter, but he does talk about things like if you see a bird coming towards you from the left, it means X, or you see bird going away from you from the left, it means Y, you know, that kind of a thing. Okay. It's, yeah. It's so all of this just goes back to um, omenology and omenology playing a much more important role in the ancient world, going back to like ancient, ancient times, not just in the Roman empire, but also in earlier traditions in Mesopotamia and in India, they still have some of these traditions that survive to this day of, for example, in the certain forms of the Prashna or the Hori tradition of when somebody comes to the astrologer and asks a question, the astrologer paying attention to not just 
the chart and the alignment of the planets at the moment the question is asked under the premise that the, the alignment of the planets will show not just the nature of the question, but also the outcome or the answer, but the astrologer is also supposed to pay attention to anything that's happening in the environment around them at that time, because it also might be sending signs or omens of um, something important in terms of information that's important to know that can help you to understand what's going to happen or, or what the future brings. And here, I think Agrippa at one point, for example, gives an example of like, if you're about to just do a magical operation and a mouse starts eating at your robe or something like that to immediately cease what you're doing, because it's a, it's a negative omen that the outcome will not be good. Yes. I, I think, <laughs> I think we would probably do that anyway. Um, yeah. That, that's actually literally, almost literally happened when I was younger uh, with my original teacher he he taught that sort of a thing. We were doing a ceremony and a, and a rat had gotten it somehow. And, and he read that as there being someone who was working against him or us or whatever. Um, so yeah, he looked at that as an omen. So that's something that uh, I've actually seen being done, but a lot of people don't pay attention to it. Um, and, but again, like in the astrological world, I don't think that's just part, that's not really part of what people tend to really do. Uh, but it's an interesting, I'd be interested, interested to see if people start paying attention to things like that more now. Yeah, I mean, there's certain, it's something that's fallen out of the tradition because of the divorce of astrology from maybe some of its origins and roots in divination, like, like Jeffrey Cornelius argues, and because right. in order to survive um, Christianity after the fall of the Roman Empire, astrology had to reframe itself as a natural science of, you know, the planet's zapping us through celestial rays versus that earlier understanding of astrology partially being a, a form of divination like tarot or um, the I Ching or other things like that that sends messages to humans through signs and symbolism and, and symbology. So it may have fallen out partially due to that reason, but you still see sort of um, echoes of it in some of the earlier authors like Firmicus Maternus. I think he's, right. he gives some interpretations for like if there's a storm or there's a lightning strike at the moment that a person is born, then it means this. And so there's still like little traces of some of that, that omenology there in some of the early source texts. Yeah. And it, the, it would be interesting to see that because really the problem is that, like I said earlier, people today tend to be very, you know, they, they compartmentalize things a lot. Uh, they specialize in things a little bit too much. And really, I, I think that if you're, if you're doing astrology and you believe the astrology works, it's not really a huge stretch to see that that, I mean, I think most astrologers believe that that astrology influences everything on earth, but then to sort of take that to its furthest limits and say, okay, well, you know, what's happening right now or what's, um, you know, or, or how, what can we do with this information, you know, for the future kind of a thing. Um, you know, one of the examples I think of from my Afro-Cuban side of things is, you know, we have a divination and um, there are certain signs that come up in the divination that actually warn you that if something happens during, the, like there's one sign that says um, that if you hear something outside while this reading is going on, um, like an accident or a strange sound or something like that, not to investigate it. And so it's a very fascinating idea to me that um, 
that, yeah, yes, we're doing the astrology. We sort of think of these, you know, readings as being this, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to say clinical, but a, a, a sort of a isolated entity. And, and, to, and to think that more holistically in this, in this magical worldview that it's actually part of. Um, I, would, I would love to see more of that. I think it's happening more than it used to. Um, I noticed, I think a lot of younger um, people coming into astrology aren't necessarily as constrained <laughs> as some of the older people were um, about, about their approaches because there's just so much available now. And I think, I think that with a lot of younger people, it's, it, it feels like more of a given that, that astrology is part of this bigger, bigger world. Um, but I, I hope to see more of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, that makes sense. And, and it's, there's so much there that's interesting to explore. And that takes us back to something that I think almost all cultures share in common around the world, no matter where that is, which is that almost every culture developed some form of divination. And there's some sort of um, notion that through random, seemingly random or chance-like phenomenon, like the shuffling of cards or the throwing of coins or dice or what have you, that um, it can actually send pertinent messages and describing the nature of what's happening in that moment and telling you something about what's coming up in the future. And um, the fact that that's shared in common among so many cultures is really interesting and you know, ties into astrology because originally astrology was one of the later forms of divination that, that developed where you would look at what was happening and the movement of the planets and stars was seen as a little bit more random, sort of like the shuffling of cards, but that it could convey uh, things about what was happening in the moment as well as what was coming up in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, I, I, I love how things are, are going because I feel like that um, when I started with, for both of us, I mean, we started around the same time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we started studying astrology, it's just, you, you know, you had this, you had these, these, um, these camps that never crossed, <laughs> never crossed their boundaries. And, um, and astrology, you know, to some extent still isn't taken very seriously by a lot of, by a lot of occultists, but, um, but it's, it's it, the, the two worlds are, are starting to converge a little bit more. I've noticed it more in the last maybe 10 years. Um, but it's, you know, blending that magical thinking with the astrology. I mean, you know, I, I think about that one episode you did with um, Rick Levine where the power went out as soon as right. you. <laughs> the Uranus episode. Yeah, yeah. Like the Uranus episode. Um, you know, things like that happen. You know, or audio problems with this one. I'm not sure. But <laughs> yeah. Well, and just going back to that notion of astrology and that, that the, moment of the inception of something at the alignment of the planets at that moment has something special to say about the quality of what you're starting at that time and its future. Um, and that you can read that through the symbolism of the planets and the stars and the alignment of the cosmos at that moment. Um, and just the basic premise that for some reason, the outcome of something uh, is built into its origins and that the origin uh, or seed moment of something when you start something carries that potential so that it's not just paying attention to the stars and planets at that moment, but anything happening in your environment that really takes us back to very early, um, you know, omenology in ancient cultures that, and the sort of universality of that, of different cultures around the world, I think hints at it getting to something that's very 
deep and profound and important about something that's a basic property of the cosmos that maybe isn't well understood or articulated at this point. But here in Agrippa, we see how he's tying together all of these different threads of all of these different philosophical and religious and occult and divinatory practices and showing how all of those different pieces, or at least attempting to show how all those different pieces can fit together um, in the model of the, the cosmos that he had at the time. And in that way, this work um, represents one of the best attempts at that, um, that anyone's made in history because of its attempt to bring everything together under one, one banner and in one set of books. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things this book did, did for me was, um, you know, one of the oldest arguments in astrology is how, how does, how does astrology work? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the modern era, we get a lot of, um, you know, things like, you know, maybe it's magnetism, maybe it's gravity, maybe it's light, maybe it's these quantum physics or something like that. But, um, as I was doing this book, I started thinking to myself, it's like, well, what if, you know, what if it's just magic? What if it's spirits? You know, it's, and a little revelation I had uh, when I was doing, I was translating one of the sections where he was talking about the, the diamonds, the or, say demon or spirits, uh, the personal demons or diamonds of each individual. And, you know, Grippa says there are basically three kinds. You have one of the, the nativity, one of, I can't remember the second one, and then one is a is profession. And he, he, he singles out profession, and um, him quoting Iamblichus singles out the demon of profession. And a little light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, well, that's, you know, when we do an astrological chart, we're identifying a planet that signifies um, profession. So, you know, what if that's, you know, that's sort of what it's talking about, that sort of thinking. And how and how deeply that can apply that can apply to the rest of the chart. It's you know maybe it's you know this is just an alter, alternate view of looking at it. You know maybe it's not literally you know Mars the planet that, you know making you a fireman, <laughs> but you know maybe it's just that that spiritual component that predisposes you to you know accept that kind you know, kind of profession. It's a, it's a martial type of nature that just you know comes out. And I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting way to approach the astrology itself or natal astrology, um, you know, getting away from thinking of these physical bodies versus a, a spiritual body is an interesting little switch, a little shift in thinking, I think. Right. So, and that's a large part of the third book where he focuses on the, the notion of different spirits and um, working with or the identification of those. And he, he has like a, a few different rationales for astrology throughout the books that are basically a synthesis of different rationales that were present and prevalent during his time period. And one of those is um, like the notion of planetary rays going back to right. Alkindi. And then there's another that seems to be more hermetic about the hermetic um, correspondence between celestial things and earthly things, or right. like a, like a mirroring between the macrocosm and the microcosm. Um, yeah, so he, he describes like a few different things at different points. Yeah, and it's and it and they actually do go together when you think about it, because if you're taking this type of thinking to its logical conclusion, the the body the planets are bodies. 
And if the planets are bodies, just like we are bodies, we have a physical component and we have a spiritual component. And they're both sort of acting in their own way. So the spiritual rays, I mean, you know, that kind of goes back to Greek optical theory about your eyes emitting, you know, rays. And so you think about the physical bodies of the planets emitting these rays through their proverbial eyes, I guess. Uh, but with, but also having this, this spiritual component, which is also moving according to the body and spiritual component of the universe itself, the, the world soul, um, which is, you know, goes back to Timaeus, you know, about the, the about the universe being a, a body or an animal. Right. That was, seems like a really important component that he mentions constantly was the notion of the platonic notion of the world soul and the idea that um, just like the human individual has a body that is our, our sort of physical being, but also has a soul that's infused throughout the body and that animates the body and directs it, that the cosmos, the entire cosmos itself is uh, a living being that has a body, which is like the physical world that we see and perceive with our senses, but it also has a soul that's infused throughout and then connects different parts of the cosmos and that seems to be one of the most core central philosophical concepts that he he mentions and, and brings up over and over again throughout the entirety of the three books. Yes, and I think it kind of takes it out of a mechanistic uh, approach because I, I know myself included, it's pretty popular to think of uh, astrology as being like, like a clock with all these gears and everything running. And uh, which... Could still be true and it's in a way but you but but you have this mental component to it because like just like with people you know you you see the person they're they're acting the way they act and they move the way they move um but what we're perceiving is only a small portion of what that person is there's a there's an invisible deeper person within that you know within them and uh, so you know when you're working with magic you're working with astrology you're actually working with that deeper almost invisible component of the, of the planets and the stars which is being informed by their connection with the world soul which is being informed by its connection with um you know ultimately the creator the first cause and um and agrippa you know talks a lot about the you know this this golden chain of influences which is uh, a, a really nice i think visual device and one of my favorite chapters, he talks about the, the, the three parts of the human soul, uh, which are mind, reason, and something that he calls idolum, which I had to leave untranslated, uh, which is kind of like the, uh, the most physical component of the soul. And uh, so this chain works off these cor correspondences where the idolum is on the bottom, that's the feet, so to speak. Then you have reason, and then you have the mind at the top, and the mind your the mind of your human soul connects with the the feet so to speak of the soul of the levels above you so you know probably the planets uh, and, the, and, they, and they just have this whole like interlinking chains of connections that go all the way up to the top and it's it's a fascinating visual device to me mm -hmm. uh, to think of it that way um and you know ultimately the three books is kind of a very long description of that, <laughs> of, the, of this chain of correspondence. Um, and I think if you think of this, you know, I'm not 
saying that people have to be Catholic or Christian. I'm certainly not. Um, but if you think in terms of this, you know, kind of ultimate source for things, whatever that source is, and having that just filter down, you know, layer by layer by layer by layer, even if it's not literally true, we know that there are other galaxies and solar systems, you know, there, there are millions of these. And, um, but if you think of this just visually and poetically, it's, it's a very powerful idea. And, um, you know, it's what the ancients did. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, you're using your imagination. Uh, imagination's kind of degraded now as a, as a term, because we think of imagination as, you know, not having any kind of reality to it. Um, in the ancient world, you know, your imagination is what makes you act. And that's what, that's the animating force behind magic. And applying that to the astrology is a, uh, is a, something I don't hear very much. I mean, there's this almost like a mediumistic component to astrology that isn't really acknowledged by a lot of people. Uh, we tend to think of things as rules and techniques and you follow, follow this and you start speaking. But I think every astrologer has had that experience where you say something, you don't know exactly where it came from. You know, it's, you came from the astrology, but you took that somewhere uh, special. And that's, that's the sort of thing I think Agrippa is talking about. And that's the sort of, uh, I guess, place that I want to get to more consistently. Um, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then one last thing you just mentioned that made me think of something else to bring up, which is something he talks about at different points or seems to talk about is magic as the sort of manifestation of the will, or I don't know if that's implicit in just the basic premise of magic and the way that a lot of it's being used or conceptualized here. And something he does mention explicitly, which I, I almost feel like he's drawing on the Picatrix or, or similar lines of thought, but the necessity of belief and mm -hmm. actually believing that what you're doing in some of these magical operations will work or that it can change or affect your will in some way, um, that that's like a prerequisite to it actually working and you being mm -hmm. successful versus if you're somehow skeptical or doubting that this is actually a legitimate thing, that that in and of itself will hamper your ability to actualize your will at that point in time. Yeah. So at, at its simplest, magic, according to Agrippa, works by employing all three of the worlds. So all basically all three books. Uh, so the natural world, celestial world, and uh, divine world. And the celestial world is a little complicated because I don't think it always means astrology specifically um, because it also includes number and alphabets and things like that. So there's a little bit more to it than just astrology. Um, but you're employing all three of those worlds. But the thing that makes all three of those worlds become magical is the, is the practitioner. And it's, it's the same thing with astrology. I mean, when you're doing a reading, you know, the stars are just doing what they do or the planets are doing what they do. But when you're doing a reading, you're, you're, um, you're, you're basically making something, uh, you're, you're making a different package out of that to make it understandable to someone. And so the belief part of it is that the sort of the, the active agent in the magic. So it's the, the practitioner, the practitioner, and if you don't believe in it, you, um, well, well I, I think from a mundane standpoint, you really can't do anything unless you believe in what you're doing. Um, and you can't really cook unless you 
believe you can cook, even if there might be a little bit of a doubt, like whether or not I can do this, but you should have some sort of confidence in doing what you're doing. And the part that's kind of unstated there, I think in that section is that it's the, what Agrippa calls the imaginative spirit of the magician is, is the sort of activating force. So it's the knowledge and belief and the um, purity. And I think in all senses of the word, I don't, you know, that that's a big term, but the purity of the magician as well, um, allowing all three of those elements to come together into one particular result. Um, so if you, if you have, if you don't believe in what you're doing, then you probably are going to be unable to enact anything because you don't lack the confidence to actually act. Hmm. Like yeah. a, a, a cadent planet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that really is interesting to me. And I've been pondering that a lot lately, how the intentionality of the practitioner of an astrologer can make a real difference in doing or accomplishing something and how that might be relevant for things like electional astrology, where you're kind of doing something similar. And that's something Austin and I talked about how electional astrology is the closest analog in terms of branches of astrology to magic, because you're mm -hmm. attempting to actualize um, and achieve some specific objective. You're trying to will something to happen by picking one moment to initiate it rather than another. And in that way, you're, you're almost sort of manipulating the astrology to a certain extent, um, but it's ultimately coming from a place of, of attempting to achieve one outcome rather than another and doing it based on the notion that different moments in time will be more or less successful or more or less auspicious for that thing. Yeah, it's that, it's that clarity and the knowledge that you can do it. I mean, that's that's sort of like, when you, I guess, if you're doing an electional chart and someone asks, asks you to elect a, a marriage and, um, and you think, okay, well, you know, I think this is all crap. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you'd be charging for it, but anyway, <laughs> this hypothetical astrologer. And so you don't believe that, that the astrology is real. Then you're probably not going to be paying attention to a lot of details that you should be paying attention to. Um, or if you entirely lack confidence, same thing, you're going to miss a lot of things. It's, it's um, not that you have to be perfect. I mean, I think that there's no, there's no magical act or astrolog or, or the act of a, a reading an astrology chart. Um, where you are hundred percent confident in what you do, because you don't, when you, when you do a reading, you're putting yourself at risk every single time because you don't know if you're going to say something that's going to be entirely incorrect, you know, with that client uh, or that you're going to say something that's going to offend them, or you're just going to be entirely off base, or maybe the time is wrong. There's all these things that could go wrong with it. But as long as you're kind of going in with, you know, okay, well, at least I, I know how to read this chart. <laughs> And just kind of go off of that and the rest kind of falls together. And so the same thing with the magical operation, you just say, okay, well, there could be results that I don't expect, um, but I'm going in with the confidence that this is what I need to do and everything will fall into place. I think it's kind of partially what it's talking about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's something I've been really interested in exploring more and more because that's that is something you have to learn early on as an astrologer and you don't have initially when you first start doing consultations, which is that you have the abstract 
book learning of knowing how to read, let's say, a birth chart, but you don't have a lot of practice in actually sitting down with a stranger and reading their chart. And so you may still have a lot of trepidation going into it about, is this going to work? Or sometimes like seeing a configuration of planets and having an idea about what that means, but then being like, you know, surely that delineation is not correct, or this person hasn't had this highly specific thing happen in their life. And you'll maybe hold back and not say that. But then later in the consultation, the person will say that they had this very highly specific thing happen actually in their life. And the astrologer will be like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense because of this placement. And sometimes um, part of the process of, of getting good at astrology as a practicing astrology is learning to trust the astrology and to say what the astrology says in the consultation, because more times than not, that's actually going to turn out to be surprisingly true or surprisingly correct. In despite... that case, learning. I was going to, sorry. I was saying in that case, learning tact too. That's part of it is sure. Like, okay, well, this could mean this, 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 does this make sense? You know? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a part that does get a little tricky because that's <laughs> something I was always impressed by, for example, Robert Zoller, when I knew him and when I lived at Project Hindsight for a year, when he was living here at the same time around 2007, um, he, I was, I was impressed by one of the things that he, I think, drew from learning medieval astrology and being one of the first practitioners in modern times to revive the actual practice of medieval astrology was to have that confidence of making very specific, literal interpretations of astrological placements and how those will work out in practice. And sometimes developing that inner confidence to say the specific thing that's abnormally and so highly specific that it almost seems like it shouldn't be true, but through years of doing it and, and learning, actually being able to make a highly specific and true statement just purely based on the astrology. But then, yeah, sometimes the highly specific statement also sometimes being um, not <laughs> the not the most like, I don't know, like politically correct is not the correct term, but not the most tactful thing to like say to a client or not the most appropriate thing to say or or other issues that, that can come up. And, I, and I've also learned just from my magical work, um, you know, now that I've had so many years in my Afro-Cuban practice, I'm now considered an elder by some people. <laughs> and um, so there, there's a point where you, just, where you just have to, you just have to do things. And the first few times I did this, I actually had to run a ceremony myself. I, you know, I still kind of sweat a little bit inside. I'm thinking, okay, well, I have to pay attention to 5,000 things. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, what if I forget this? There's all these things that go through your mind, but you know, there's, there's, you just, when you're in the moment, you're just doing it. You just have to have the, the confidence to actually just do it. And if you forget something, you forget something. Um, and, and if you get something a little bit wrong, then you get something a little bit wrong. But if you're worrying about, I think that's, that's, that's the part of the belief thing is you're, if you're worrying about all of these little details, that's going to probably stop you from doing it. Same yeah. thing with astrology. I mean, how many times do people, you know, are, are people reading books for, you know, 20 years and never talking to a client because they're, they're afraid that they don't have enough knowledge to, to actually do it. Right. Yeah. So I guess the underlying point here is there's, there's something about the internal confidence um, of the astrologer or practitioner or what have you that may impact their ability to actually actualize what they're trying to do. And that's something in practical terms that should not be um, surprising because we, we all know that there's something to that in terms of just like having confidence in one's life when you're trying to do anything versus not and how that can affect things. 
Um, but it's interesting thinking about it from a occult or magical or divinatory standpoint, how the, the sort of internal confidence um, of the practitioner could impact things in different ways, sometimes in subtle ways or other times in very major ways um, as, a, as a whole component to, you know, this whole, whole side of things. Yeah, it's, you know, at, at heart, if you take the magic seriously, I think even this applies to astrology is that it's a relational type of thing. I mean, you're, you're developing into uh, a short or long-term relationship with that client, not, not that kind of relationship, but <laughs> it's, it's a type of relationship. When you're, when you're doing a magical act, you're, you're entering into a relationship with a spirit temporarily or long-term. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, I think of it a lot, like if you're, it's like when you go out on a date and if you are on that date, the first time date, and you're just, you know, talking about how, you know, you're nothing, <laughs> um, chances are you probably want to have a second date. Uh, there's a, there's a fine line between being too confident because you also don't want to go on that date and be able, I am the best thing since sliced bread. Um, you want to go too far, but if you're, if you, if you could at least go and say, okay, well, look, I know that, you know, I, 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 I know what I'm doing here. I'm probably going to make mistakes. I'm probably going to forget something, but I just have to, to, to do it. And let the results, whether it's astrology or magic, you know, speak for themselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that's something really interesting and important to contemplate just the role of that role of confidence, internal fortitude, belief, and, yeah, belief and knowledge in oneself and what you're doing can play a role in, in different, different things. Right. So, all right. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're at our end of our two hours. So is there anything else to mention about this? I I guess the book is out. It's available in bookstores, available in fine bookstores now everywhere. It's published through inner traditions. Was there a specific publication date? When did it come out? It was, I believe, November 21st of 2021. Okay, cool. Um, excellent. Well, people can check that out. Um, and your website is ericperdue.com, right? Correct. Okay. Do you have uh, anything? You, so go ahead. Do you have anything coming up or anything um, you're excited about in terms of future projects? Are you going to translate any other 500-year-old works anytime <laughs> soon? Um. It's, it's funny. I have a little bit of empty, uh, empty nest syndrome. Um, All right. So yeah, once I finished it, I, I was kind of, it was, I, I sat there for a bit thinking, okay, now what's next? You know, I just finished Sergeant Peppers. Um, so yeah, I've been working, slowly working on a translation of um, um, Jean-Baptiste Moran's Astrologica Gallica. Mm. Um, that's probably going to take a while. Yeah. Um, that's not a short, short book. Yeah, it's actually longer than I thought. Right. <laughs> I've been transcribing it, and it's going to be probably, I think, in Microsoft Words, about nine hundred pages, uh, something like that. So it's it's not short. Um, but that, yeah, that would so, be that would be incredible. Like I was actually, I didn't think you could pull off. Like there was no other books of this stature <laughs> that you even out there that you could translate, especially since Ben Dykes has been translating so many. But that actually, if you translated. Morin's entire work that would be comparable that would be up there compared to this <laughs> i don't think anybody wants to tackle this whole book <laughs> yeah i don't sure. know why i do that to myself 
I actually tried to find some smaller book to do and I couldn't find anything that um, was, I felt like people want to buy mm-hmm. or that was notable. Um, but that, that one stuck out. Uh, but I've been thinking about, you know, just doing some regular books that I write <laughs> on astrology. Um, Cause there, there's some things I think that are, that have not been dealt with in depth, you know, in the astrology world, at least in, in modern books that would be, uh, that would be helpful. There's always room for more. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing your next project. Um, people should check out your website. You do do offer consultation, astrological consultations, right? I do. I also sell the book from my site and I will warn people it is, um, it is not cheaper than Amazon mm. <laughs> and it's going to take longer because I have to order it from the publisher. Um, but if you want to help a poor starving author, you know, that's, that's an option. Uh, do you, would you like sign a copy or anything like that? Yeah, I can also autograph them. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a good deal. I'd there like we go. Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Signed, signed copy from the translator is a pretty good, pretty good deal. And sell on an eBay for a fortune. Um, and are you going <laughs> to, you attend, I know one of the first in-person astrology conferences is going to happen again this year in Seattle, the Northwest astrology conference. And I would always see you make an appearance because you live in Seattle. Right. Um, are you going to make an appearance possibly there? I am. And in fact, this is the first year where I actually paid for tickets. So I'm not loitering this year. Okay. So. <laughs> have, that's good. Won't just have to like see you outside of the conference to hang out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a little wet dog. Right. <laughs> good. All right. Well, people should check that out and maybe they can see you there and, and bring, they can uh, carry the entire like three book set uh, across the country yeah. to get you, get you to sign it at, at the conference. Yeah. Get one of those luggage carts that you carry around with you. Okay. That's a good idea. All right. Well, uh, congratulations on finally releasing this monumental translation. This is a huge deal. Uh, the whole community, both astrological and magical owes you a huge mm-hmm. debt of gratitude. You did a great job. Also shout Thank out to you. your pub- publisher who did an amazing job putting this together. And it's really cool that they took this work on, not just to publish it, but also to do such a good job. Um, also shout out to the editors because they, they did an amazing job. Yeah, I can imagine. And, <laughs> it made me look good. <laughs> good. That is also always the unsung heroes of publishing is, is the editors. Yeah, no, it's, I, I was, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, they, they found something in every page. So right. please, please use editors, everybody. <laughs> if you're, if you're writing a book, get an editor. Yeah. People, first time uh, writers often, don't realize the importance of having an editor until the very, very end or, or afterwards, but it's a really important part yeah, of the process. Everyone needs them. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. All right. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening thanks. to this episode of the astrology podcast. That's it for this episode. So thanks for watching and we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, 
access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline uh, basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022, near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwac.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org. Thank you.